sitting here and the word beautiful comes to mind. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful time of the year. And I'm thinking about the richness and variety of life and the goodness of God. And so I'm glad to have you think about these things with me today. As always, welcome to the well for these next 15 or 20 minutes. We'll talk about how to live wisely and faithfully in this beautiful, wonderful world that is also a fallen world and replete with challenge. And so I'm glad to have you along. I Even as I say it's a beautiful world, it's a beautiful day, and life is good, I know that some of you hearing these words do not experience life in that way. Perhaps you are riddled with guilt or riddled with shame. And if you are, I want to talk about that with you for these next few minutes. I was listening to a, a podcast this past week. It was a sports podcast. But the host was talking about a conflict uh, that has arisen in the NBA, the National Basketball Association. The NBA is huge in China. There are like 1.3 billion people over there, and they love pro basketball, and they love the NBA. And billions of dollars flow from China into the NBA coffers. Well, recently, the general manager of the Houston Rockets franchise of the NBA tweeted, you know, Twitter's how we talk, tweeted support for those in Hong Kong who are pro-democracy in opposition to what's going on in mainland communist China. And it seemed like a pretty benign tweet, but it caused an uproar because the Chinese government didn't appreciate that. And so there was a great deal of consternation within, within the NBA. What's going to happen? You know, we don't want to you know, kill the goose that lays the golden egg. And so there's been all kinds of conversation. LeBron James, who's a household name, NBA superstar, came out and basically said of that general manager, he does not understand what he's talking about. And clearly LeBron James was thinking about all the money and support for the NBA in China. And the host of the podcast made an interesting observation about LeBron in terms of his understanding of geopolitical issues. He basically said LeBron does not know what he doesn't know. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. I mean, do you ever hear that said or think that? about yourself or others, you know, she doesn't know what she doesn't know. I mean, I hear that uh, over and over again about different people. It's become a really popular phrase. The host of the, the podcast uh, made um, an allusion to the Dunning-Kruger effect in the context of LeBron not knowing what he doesn't know. And that prompted me to do a little research. What is the Dunning-Kruger effect? Well, it goes back about 20 years ago. Two social psychologists, David Dunning from the University of Michigan, and Justin Kruger from NYU basically studied failure. Why is it that certain people fail in their relationships, in their social engagements? Why do they fail vocationally? Why do we fail? And the study was called Unskilled and Unaware of It. And what they found was that many people who fail in these arenas tend to assess their cognitive ability as greater than it actually is. In other words, they think they know more than they actually know, that they have a higher intellect than they actually have. And what they learned was that in terms of intellectual maturity or emotional maturity, often the people who find themselves failing time and time again are not self-aware. They overestimate how other people see them. They overestimate their own intelligence. And we've all been in situations where we see this. I've been in meetings before where one person in the meeting will literally suck up all the air out of the room. You know, just talk constantly. 
you know, if there are 100,000 words uttered in that meeting, one person out of 20 will utter 60,000 of those words. And of course, I've seen that happen. The person doesn't realize how others are reacting to what is being said. You know, the other people are shifting in their chairs. They're losing interest. They're yawning. They're looking away. They're looking at their phones. They're rolling their eyes. And the person just keeps on talking. And of course, when the meeting's over, no one wants to talk to that person. And so essentially, that person being unaware has led to a social relational failure. And so we see that from time to time. In our relationship with Christ, we live a life that is guided by God's Spirit. And one of the gifts God gives us is the gift of self-awareness. And in particular, God gives us an awareness of our flaws, of our sins. We see ourselves as we are, but also God gives us an awareness of what He has done to deal with this reality. And I want to talk about that how God has dealt with our own flaws and our own sins because a lot of us are just riddled with guilt. So let me just go back and do just a quick little tutorial uh, on the Old Testament. And in particular, the existence of the tabernacle. So as you know, in the Old Testament, uh, God has instructed Moses, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with my people. Uh, I'm going to be their God. Here are the Ten Commandments. Here, here are the ways I want my people to, to interact with one another. And here's how I want them to worship me. And here's the tabernacle I want you to build for me. The word tabernacle means dwelling place. It's the dwelling of the Lord in the Old Testament. And so Moses did this very thing. And so the tabernacle was built in the center of the community of God's people. And of course, there are tents all around the outside. And then the tabernacle is the structure that is God's dwelling place. And on the outside courts of the tabernacle, there, there's a place where people could go and make you know, kind of daily or weekly sacrifices as they uh, were instructed to do for their sins. There was a place where the priests would then wash their hands and cleanse themselves so they could enter into what was called the holy place. Inside the holy place, the priest on the Sabbath would eat bread. It would symbolize God's interaction with humanity. God's, that's his dwelling place, and the human is eating the bread there. There was also a, a, an incense that was burning that wafted upward, symbolizing how our prayers wafted to God and God heard our prayers. There were lamps that continually burned that symbolized the continuing presence of God, that God was always there. And the priests alone could go into that uh, holy place. The, the rank and file could not go in. But there was one priest, the, the high priest, who was able to go to what was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And there was a curtain or a thick veil that, that walled off the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, there's just one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant was this structure that held significant artifacts of the Hebrew religion. The, the stone tablets from Moses. Manna from heaven, a symbol of God's provision. Aaron, his staff, symbolizing God's offer of or gift of leadership. So those were in the, the in the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the place where the priest would take blood and sprinkle blood to atone for the sins of the people. And that's how the people dealt with their guilt. You know, they knew that they were guilty. They knew they had sinned. How did they make it right? Well, they, they, they sprinkled this blood. Now, I know that a lot of us, when we think about blood, and that's gross. It's disgusting. Why in the world would God require blood uh, as a sacrifice to atone for sin? But remember, blood symbolizes life. 
the Hebrews thought the soul actually was in a person's blood. That's where the soul resided. The, so, the blood was not gross. Blood was good. I mean, have you ever been in a hospital and someone is there in a, on a stretcher or in a hospital bed and they are lifeless? The color has left their face and they, they, their eyes are closed. They look like they're almost dead. And then they get a blood transfusion and the color reappears and their eyes begin to flutter. Blood is a beautiful thing. That was the system God established to forgive sinful people and to save them from their guilt. Now, as you and I think about guilt in life, and let's get into this a little bit. I've heard it said by one person who studies human behavior that there are two kinds of guilt. There's overt guilt and there's covert guilt. Overt guilt is obvious. You and I do something wrong, we feel bad about it. We're unkind to someone, we regret it and we apologize. We break a commandment, we feel guilt, and we confess. Uh, a lot of us have this, this overt guilt. I mean, I was, you know, said unkind words to someone just yesterday, and I, I just had this sense of guilt that I had done that, and, and so that is something we all deal with. Covert guilt is that gnawing feeling that we have in our gut that we are not right. It's nothing specific. We just feel guilty. And here's the thing. Guilt can be a positive thing because guilt drives us to confession, right? It drives us to apologize. It drives us to repent. I mean, a person who doesn't experience guilt is what? A sociopath, right? Or a narcissist. And so, so guilt is a good thing. It can be a gift. But here's the truth. The accumulation of guilt in your life and in my life, unchecked, not dealt with, leads to shame. And shame is when you and I begin to loathe ourselves. We're just ashamed. And when we are ashamed, it seems to me that we retreat into at least one of, one of these two behaviors. One, we begin to live kind of in secret and just kind of sneak around and try to cover up who we are. We just do that when we feel this, this shame that we don't want anyone to really know. And the other thing we do is we tend to isolate ourselves. We avoid significant relationships with the people around us because we just feel this deep sense of shame. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. You think about the very first two humans, Adam and Eve. They disobeyed God. They felt shame. And you know what they did? One, they covered themselves. They lived in secrecy. And two, they hid from God. They isolated themselves from Him. Shame uh, is destructive. There was a study at Michigan State University not long ago. And shame was seen as one of the root causes of bullying, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, eating disorders, and even suicide. And so here's a question for you today. Have you dealt with your guilt? Both your overt guilt and your covert guilt. You see, if you think about, of course, the Hebrews had their way of dealing with guilt. You and I, we all have our ways of dealing with guilt. Now, in the old system that we talked about with the tabernacle, there were a couple of limitations. One, only the high priest and only once a year had access to God. So the access to God was limited. And two, it was only partial cleansing. In fact, it's written in the book of Hebrews, actually, that this, was, um, this cleansing was really just uh, ceremonial. Various washings, it had to do with food and drink, but did not clear the conscience of the worshiper. And so how do you deal with your guilt? I mean, a lot of us, you know, I, I think about how we punish ourselves. We just rehearse over and over again to ourselves that we have this guilt. 
Uh, we spend countless hours feeling bad. And, and the truth is, if we don't deal with our guilt in a healthy way, it begins to fester and grow. And the next thing you know, we're ashamed and we're covering up and we're isolating. Well, God has an answer for your guilt and for my guilt. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 9. I'll start with verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, so he was the high priest of the good, the, the, the tabernacle and all that, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say it's not a part of this creation, in other words, in heaven. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, you know, sanctified them so that they were outward, outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death. Jesus entered the Holy of Holies, the eternal tabernacle, and gave his own blood as a sacrifice for our sins. And therefore, those limitations are no longer there. One, we now have access to God. And we love access, don't we? I mean, we watch reality TV shows because we want to get behind the scenes. You know, we, we love things like that. We also know uh, that... You know, the, the, the veil that, that, that shielded the uh, Holy of Holies, remember it was torn from top to bottom. In other words, not just the high priest could enter, but now anyone could enter into the presence of God. And we also know because of what Christ did was that our cleansing is now all the way. It's not just external. It's not just partial. We go to God knowing that God does not want us to be ashamed. If you know your Old Testament history, you'll remember that God actually provided a way for Adam and Eve to cover themselves. He, he provided a way for them to deal with their shame, a covering. And God in Christ has provided you and me with that covering as well. And so what is our response to our guilt? Based on what we know from our, from our reading of the New Testament, I, I see two things. One, God asks you and me to confess our guilt. The temptation is to cover it, to keep it secret like Adam and Eve did. But remember in Christ, your cleansing is complete. He has gone into the Holy of Holies and he has given his blood. And so confess our, confess our guilt. And the other thing that God wants us to do is to be in Christian community, to be around other believers to engage in worship. I know that we're living in a time when we kind of like to retreat and kind of huddle, you know, with, you know, either alone or with our family or whatever the case might be. But we're called to be in community with one another. You see those first two people, Adam and Eve, they isolated themselves from God. They hid from God. And when you and I isolate ourselves, the guilt that we're experiencing can easily lead to shame. And so why would I start this, this talk by, by using the example of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Because here's what I want us to know. I want us to be self-aware and to understand where we are guilty, to understand our flaws and our sins. But I also want us to be Christ-aware and be aware of the fact 
that, that he has gone into that holy place and made a sacrifice for your sins and for mine. Therefore, the slate is wiped clean. We don't have to punish ourselves. We don't have to hide. We don't have to isolate. We can live our lives in, in joy and in peace and, and love this beautiful life and this beautiful creation that God has given to us. Well, that's my food for thought for this week. As always, I'd like to wish you a, a wonderful week and look forward to being with you again next week.